Welcome back to Olympic Size, the podcast about Olympic history. Uh, we're doing part two of the 1900 Olympics. I'm your host, Bridget Natali, and with me as ever are my delightful co-hosts. I'm Sarah. I'm Frank. <laughs> and we uh, are... I remembered my name. <laughs> That's good. Sarah's... Uh... I want to be rewarded. All right, you're eating bread. You're happy. Shut up. <laughs> Nothing. Okay. That is extremely attacking. I have right nothing now. to add to this. <laughs> okay, and so like I said, we're doing part two of the 1900 Parisian Olympics. Uh, last episode, we talked about um, what were we talking about? We we're talking about what the what it was, how it was attached to the uh, Exposition Universelle, and and what that was, and why it was not a great partnership, and um, and then uh, we talked about some of the things that went well, uh, despite all the uh, cards stacked against them. So now we will talk about the things that didn't go so well, um, with the section I titled Rundown of Nonsense. <laughs> uh, okay, so Mara- These are specifically within individual sports, because the uh, whole right. meta IOC being dissolved, as far as the community abroad is aware... Kind of already didn't go well. Yeah. And, and you'd think that, that that would be in this section to some extent. Well, you know, I, I decided that would make more sense as exposition, you know, for like the whole setup um, and how nothing was called Olympic like this entire time. Um, anyway, so because of Marilyn, remember the guy who replaced uh, Rochefoucauld as like in charge of the French Olympic Committee or whatever they were calling it to run this thing, the guy who put ice skating in the knife and fork exhibit. Because of his complete neglect of where spectators were supposed to go to watch these things, to my great chagrin, we do not have a heartthrob honey or hometown hero from these Olympics. We do have a lot of wacky tales of nonsense, though. It's difficult to rank these on how bad they were, so we're just going to go through sport by sport, starting with archery and the 5,000 archers. How many people died? How uh, literal was that title? Uh, it's very literal. Um, so you thought I was joking, didn't you? <laughs> no. uh, Marilyn tried... Oh, Malin. Bill Malin, the, the book where I, I got a lot of this research. He tried to document everybody who participated in the 1900 Olympics in some kind of clear, easily referenced record. And his frustration about the archery event is palpable. <laughs> Literally, almost everybody in France, he says, was eligible to compete. And 5,000 of them, 5, 000 of them did. The archery event started on May 27th and lasted until at least August. It was held at the Place Place de la Nation in Paris. Because of the large number of participants, a complete list is impossible. However, as Malin notes, considering all those people to be Olympians would be a stretch. It would be like considering in the 1996 Olympics um, the swimmers to be every person who participated in every single qualifying event worldwide. They just had all of the qualifying events at the Olympics. <laughs> now, if you've got the space and time, that's not the worst idea. Especially if you're not going to use the archery fields for anything else. Like, run the prelims there sort of as an overflow event for other things. Like, I can get behind that. Except that, I mean, it, it requires you to travel to the place. Usually the prelim, prelims are held at the nations themselves, so they, that whoever qualifies is the one who goes. So I, I wouldn't expect this to be the only way to qualify. <laughs> like you should still be able to get to the main event from some regional. But I mean, I'm also kind of imagining that this is sort of a, 
like a state fair or a renaissance fair kind of setup where you just queue up and get a chance to shoot the bow? As far as I can tell, yes. Um, okay, so I can't tell you what the specific events were because all the sources I can find list all of the events in French with no explanation of what they actually are. And my one year of high school French isn't good enough to figure out what any of it means. <laughs> Although from what I can understand, there were bows and crossbows involved. So there were, there were events with bows and there were events with crossbows. There were six events, and after all the French entrance, only one event was actually swept by France. Oh, Chapelet, 50 meters. I don't know what that is. Um, the rest had at least one Belgian spoiler, most notably Hubert Van Innes, who won gold in Eau Chapelet, Chapelet 33 meters, and Eau Cordon, Cordon Doré, 33 meters, and silver in Eau Chapelet, 50 meters. Henri Heroin of France beat him by two points to get the gold in Eau Chapelet 50 meters. The IOC official records lists only 153 archers oh. from three countries, France, the Netherlands, and Belgium as official participants. Now, is this a, um, you mentioned crossbows. Yes. Are those separate events or is this a mixed bow and crossbow competition no crossbow is a separate event see, and there was I something see. involving like i think you'd have a crossbow on a stand or something i don't know i like really oh, could not understand like cheating. they did not actually describe these events in anything other than their french titles and anything i was able to dig up sure, sure. um M malin's book is the best um source i found most places just kind of have vague descriptions of everything because of what a mess this all was um and yeah, so shooting, uh, I say it was almost as bad, but they had 6,351 shooters competing wait, across all events. Wait, the numbers are events. going up. Yeah. They're going up. <laughs> 351 shooters competing across all events, and 6,098 of them were French. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. There's like one Belgium guy, and right. he's still... He's still beating all of them. Amazing. <laughs> I say almost as bad because we actually have better records of this event due to better coverage by the sporting periodicals at the time. And while no Americans managed to win any medals in shooting that year, other than in the live pigeon shooting event, which is no longer considered an official Olympic sport. We <laughs> uh, are super good at murder. Yeah, the, France was not the big winner in shooting, despite their 6,000 entrants. That honor goes to the Swiss, particularly due to the efforts of Conrad Stahely, Stahely, who won four of the seven Swiss shooting medals, three gold and one bronze, two of these in team events. The Swiss won a total of five medals, France three golds with a total of ten overall. Denmark also won a gold, and Norway, Belgium, and Netherlands wrapped up the rest. Note, arguably, none of the shooting events were Olympic as they all had cash prizes. As far as we know, that could have been just listing the cash value of the prizes they were given. Uh, and so the IOC recognizes some of them now, anyway. <laughs> equestrian. This one is interesting. Uh, equestrian is a tricky one, as it's unclear how many people actually competed. The estimate is somewhere between 37 and 64 people. Ah, so we've, we've gone much down. <laughs> yeah, much further down. Uh, the 37, is, that's almost double. Could they have just been counting the horses? Well, they said the problem was that riders could enter the same competition more than once on different horses. Okay, that's insane. And nobody kept good records of who was doing what. <laughs> could the same horse enter with more than one rider multiple times? No, I think the horses only did them okay. once. Okay. okay. 
Horses uh, are not doing paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> Horses aren't really interested in doing this shit more than once, too. Horses are yeah. probably getting out of this with all the profits from the, from I, the I, revenue. I don't, know. I don't know how to make it more clear that the horses do not know how to enter themselves into the, into the competition. Uh, the IOC recognizes jumping, high jump, and long jump as equestrian events. Belgium, Italy, and France all medaled, with Belgium earning the most gold and the most medals overall. The IOC does not recognize foreign hand mail coach, which was a race with a team of four horses pulling a mail coach. Were they actually delivering the mail? No. And they were like, this is a sport. Yeah, yeah they're like... Let's see if we get some, like, free labor yeah. out of some foreigners <laughs> with their horses. Trying, the Parisians just wanted their mail to come on time for yeah. once, so they made an Olympic sport. Maybe. Game. Although it sort of also sounds like chariot racing with a bit of a more relevant payload in the chariot, which could be fine. Yeah. Well, they don't consider it an IOC official Olympic sure. event. We should still do chariot racing. Um... Hacks and Hunter combined was in, or and also Hacks and Hunter combined was is no longer considered IOC official. Uh, Hacks and Hunter combined was an event where the horses were to perform a walk, a trot, a canter, and a gallop, and some low jumps. It's kind of like dressage. I was gonna say it's similar. It seems like a precursor. It's, yeah. I single this out as the only woman to compete in equestrian uh, competed in Hacks and Hunter combined. Elvira Guerra of Italy came in ninth. They're like, oh, a woman came in ninth. It's not a sport. That sounds fake. <laughs> Gara was born in St. Petersburg, actually, in Russia, to a circus family and honed her equestrian skills in the circus. This was what women had to do if they wanted to be professional equestrians, as the circus was really the only area open to them for this sort of work. Most of the other equestrians who competed were military officers. Hmm. Um, she performed and competed at the Olympics riding side saddle and wearing a corset. <laughs> Yes. Was the horse also wearing a corset? No. <laughs> Didn't you have to be wearing a corset to leave your home? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it was like underwear. It's, you know, yeah. everybody did. Uh, or women did. Um, however, since the IOC does not recognize her event as an Olympic event, she doesn't count as the first female equestrian at the Olympics. That doesn't happen until Helsinki, 1952. Nevertheless, there's a street named after her in Bordeaux. There are rumors of another female equestrian at the 1900 Olympics, but if that's true, there's no record of her name. Was she in drag? I have no idea. Again, you have no records. You I have, have, no, no, I have no idea. Yeah. I'm like, are we sure that there weren't two and a half thousand female archers <laughs> at this <laughs> time? <laughs> um, I mean, it's a lot of it's like safe to assume probably not because these weren't the most uh, you know egalitarian in terms of uh, gender relations. Sure. So. Okay. And this, okay. So golf. Golf is on the nonsense list because of how few people how few people recognize it even as uh, even as being an olympic sport the people competing never knew the some <laughs> some golf historians still maintain that golf has never been an olympic sport however the ioc recognizes it as an olympic sport so for this podcast we will too uh that would be incredible if like they finished playing golf and they hand them a medal and they're like congratulations you <laughs> you, you won, won an olympic, olympic medal <laughs> you're an olympic medalist and they're like i'm sorry <laughs> Oh, the, I have some stories about how some of these people found out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that That's in the aftermath section. All right. The competition <laughs> took place at the Comaine Club in Paris. The men played 36 holes, or two rounds of an 18-hole course. My cat's scratching my chair. Stop it! There you go. All right. We'll fix it in post. We'll fix it, yeah. 
fix my chair in post. All right. <laughs> um, two rounds of an 18-hole course. The women played nine holes or half the, the course. The cat needs a scratching the post. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, the cat needs a scratching post. Thank you, Frank. Um, Charles Sands, an American, won the gold for the men. He would later go on to compete in lawn tennis and court tennis in 1908. American women swept. Margaret Abbott won gold, although she was given a bowl, not a medal. Her mother, Mary Abbott, also competed, making them the only mother-daughter pair to compete against each other in an Olympic sport. <laughs> Daria Pratt won bronze for the team. Um, I just, her little blurb is interesting. She entered the tournament while on vacation in Paris, shortly after her husband died. Later, she married Prince Alexis Kara Georgievich of Serbia and became a princess of Serbia. <laughs> A lot of these people were really rich. <laughs> uh, one would infer. <laughs> yeah. So, on to gymnastics. Oh boy. At what, they... at what point did it stop being feasible to casually join the Olympics while on vacation? I Presumably think... it's no longer possible. No, generally not. I think it's when they instituted the national team ah. process. Depends on what country you're from. That's true. <laughs> but you still had to go through the national team process, I think, to go. Yeah, there's a couple countries where you could just wander up and be like, I want to do bobsledding. I got three buddy, uh, three buddies. Let's let's do this. Uh, we we will get to that in 1988 with the Jamaican bobsled. Team. Hell yeah! Are we just gonna watch Cool Runnings? We'll talk about Cool Runnings. We we're gonna watch a live gonna commentary, a, like, a commentary yeah. track of Cool Runnings. We'll, yeah. we'll include my toddler because he loves that movie. Excellent. <laughs> bonus content. Yeah, bonus content. Uh, my kid cheering to <laughs> Cool Runnings. Yeah, because everyone loves Cool Runnings. It's great. All right, it's a heartwarming tale. Yes. <laughs> Um, and they do the slow clap, which is his favorite thing right now. Um, okay, gymnastics. On to gymnastics. You remember last time Germany was, like, the beast at gymnastics. And also shunned, if I remember, from... The no, they movie. boycotted after that. Remember, they right. had the, it's un-German, and we're not going to compete it's anymore. It's un-German to crush you so badly <laughs> in gymnastics. Right. But then, by now, they've decided it's German again. Um, but... <laughs> Uh, they did not win any medals in Paris. <laughs> However, that was at least partially due to how radically different the event was structured. This is, this is nutty what they did. There was only one event. <laughs> Individual, all around. The events within this were the events that had one compulsory and one optional round. Okay, so there's, there were a couple events that had a compulsory and optional round. So you could, you had to do it once, you could do it twice to rack up more points. And then there were events that only had one compulsory round that you had to do, right? So the ones that had the compulsory and the optional, horizontal bar, parallel bars, rings, pommel horse, and floor exercise. Um, so those are ones that I think are still Olympic events now. Um, I mean, there's certainly LM gymnastic equipment that people would recognize by name. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think men still do all of these, mm -hmm. the horizontal bar, parallel bars, rings, pommel horse, and floor exercise. Those are all things that they do. Now, um, the events that only had the one compulsory round, um, vault, combined high jump, I don't know what that is, long jump, pole vault, rope climbing, and weightlifting, where the athletes had to lift 50, a 50 kilogram weight 10 times. So in terms of what combined high jump could be, could be that you strap two Olympic athletes together like a three-legged race and have them jump. I think that's the most likely. I actually couldn't think of any other possible things that it could mean. 
Parkour? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I feel like parkour would have been described in a bit more detail. <laughs> um, each event was worth 20 points for a perfect score with a maximum possible score of 320 points. So that's why they had like the, the optional, you could rack up mm. more points. Um, 20 points were awarded for a perfect performance, 18 or 19 for, quote, pretty good, 15 or 17 for good, 12 to 14 for fairly good, 9 to 11 for acceptable, 68 for mediocre, um, 3 to 5 for poor, 1 to 4 for very poor, and 0 for did not attempt. For weightlifting, each successful lift was worth 2 points. So with that incredibly um, airtight and not at all o open to abuse scoring system... I, I am glad that we established pretty good is better than good. Yes. <laughs> um, France swept. <laughs> what? <laughs> France won all three medals. Gustav Sandras won gold with 302 points. Noel, Va Noel Boss won silver with 295. Lucien Demanet won bronze with 293 points. There were 135 competitors, and nearly all of them were French. The highest-placing non-French athlete was Jules Ducre of Switzerland, who tied with a guy only listed as Obrecht of France for 19th place. <laughs> Am I able to infer that the judges or judges were also friends? I believe so, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Interesting. <laughs> I don't see any correlation. Here. Right. <laughs> Polo. Polo was kind of a mess. The biggest issue appeared to be that nobody took it seriously. Players kept switching teams to play with their buddies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> According to Malin, it, quote, appears to have been a bit of a lark. With the players changing teams and representing various nations with no real rhyme or reason. The gold and silver medals were won by mixed teams, and one of the bronzes were also won by a mixed team, but the other bronze was won by Mexico. Actually, just, just to clarify, switching teams is occurring in the middle of the game or before the game? They would... After... Like... After... Like, um, before the game starts. Okay, they were okay. Like kind of switch. They I misinterpreted this to be that they were switching teams on the fly. <laughs> no. Which is even worse. No. Okay. No, but then, like, um, I know, like, a like a bunch of Irish guys, like, jumped over to the American team because their friends were on that team. And, like, yeah, they were doing that kind of stuff. Sure. But, but again, not during games. No. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But Mexico. Good job, Mexico, getting a, getting a medal in the 1900 Olympics. I think that's the first time they've shown up on the boards. Oh. So, okay. Uh, rowing. <laughs> rowing is where your babies show up. All right. Rowing <laughs> was on the Seine at the Basins de Anniers-Courbevois. Uh-huh. Um, and there were a lot of spectators because they could see, and rowing was pretty popular at the time. However, they didn't. that didn't stop nonsense from happening. First, there's like so many bizarre stories about the rowing. All right, first, in the single skulls, so single skulls is just one dude in the boat uh, rowing. San George Ash of Great Britain rowed so far out of his lane in the semifinals that he interfered with Raymond Benoit of France. Ash was almost disqualified, but ultimately allowed to proceed with Benoit, who came in second in the heat. There is no existing explanation for why Ash was allowed to proceed. Herman Barlet and André Godin refused to compete if Ash was allowed, but eventually they were both convinced to compete anyway. Uh, Bartlett won gold, Godin silver, and Ash bronze. Also, Louis Prevel fell in the water and claimed he was, quote, interfered with, but his protest was unsuccessful. S sorry, is that the, the person 
Those are two unrelated incidents? Those are two unrelated. So the first guy in one of the heats, he rode crooked. Yeah, into another person's path. Yeah. This is probably against the rules. Yeah, it is. It's very much against the rules. And for some reason, he was allowed to compete anyway. And some of the other rowers were like, no, I'm not going to compete if he's allowed. But they were talked into it. And meanwhile, unrelatedly, another guy was pushed into the water and nobody cared. (laughs) So it's just boat free-for-all. Yeah. The Mad Max of boats. Okay. So, then we have coxed pairs, which is, you have the two people rowing and then a coxswain in the front of the boat um, who's telling them to row so they could do it in unison. The qualifying rounds were unremarkable. It was the most popular rowing event of the games, which in and of themselves were one of the more popular events, even if for only the fact that people were able to watch it from the banks of the Seine. Um, coxed pairs in particular was the, the most popular, I think I said that, uh, Francis Brandt and Roloff Klein and their coxswain, Dr. Hermanus Brockman, were a team favored to win, but struggled more in the qualifying heat than they expected to. The rowers decided the problem was that their coxswain was too heavy. He weighed 132 pounds, or 60 kilograms. To solve this problem, they picked a boy out of the crowd and had him serve as coxswain. (laughs) Not much is known of the boy. He was somewhere between 7 and 10 years old, although I've seen estimates that put him up to 12. He's just like this French street kid from 1900, it's hard to say. Um, and weighed around 73 pounds, or 33 kilograms. There are pictures of him posing with the team because they won. He is the youngest Olympic gold medalist of the modern era, although his identity has never been confirmed. So first of all, that's adorable. Second of all, <laughs> good for him. Uh, third I, of how all, is it adorable they th- literally kidnap this th- child? That's fine. No. This raises questions about the skill cap of a coxswain? <laughs> like, is it so easy to do this job? Could they just put a metronome in the front of the boat? That literally a child could do it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I don't know. I've never attempted to be a coxswain. Apparently you could trivially pick it up. <laughs> you might just be gifted. I'm also... That's true. This could my, be a coxswain savant. Mm-hmm. I'm also significantly heavier than 73 pounds, so... Um... However, the IOC formally recognizes Dr. Brockman as a medal of the a member of the gold medal winning team, despite being replaced by a child in the final race. Well, they at least know his name, so. Also, this medal is officially won by a mixed team, as the boy was French and the rowers were Dutch. Hmm. Did they give the child a medal? Uh, I didn't, this was one of those events where they didn't give the winners medals. So, um, of course, the Vesper Boat Club of Philadelphia that won the gold in coxed eights, so the eight-man rowers and then the one coxswain, also used a boy for a coxswain, so he might be the youngest. I don't know. <laughs> but was that a boy they brought from Philadelphia, or are they also just kidnapping street children? The Vesper Boat Club had already won an American championship and would continue to be a dominant team for the next four years, although the... F- the, quote, find the smallest boy in the crowd to be the coxswain was not a strategy they w- could repeat in future events. Because and of regulations or because all the children ran? <laughs> like maybe um, six to one, half dozen the other. <laughs> a little bit of both. Um, we skipped coxed fours because it's crazy. It was the most controversial rowing event at the 1900 Games and possibly the most controversial, controversial rowing event ever. The original plan was actually pretty solid. There were to be three qualifying heats. The winner from each would make it into the final race. Also, because there were 10 teams, the third heat had four teams competing on it. So the first runner up from the heat would 
also make it to the final. So there, there were there were two races of three and one race of four. So winner, winner, Time winner two. in second place. Yeah. Um, so the final race would have four teams competing. However, the losers in races two and three were faster than the winner in race one and complained. Officials tried to do another qualifying heat but couldn't get word to all of the competitors. So they decided to let the three heat winners and three fastest losing boats compete in the final. So we've upped the total number of boats simultaneously in the river. To six, yes. Which is, which I'm sure is fine. Unfortunately, the course was set up to accommodate only four boats, <laughs> not six. The first, the three first place teams boycotted because of this, and so they had a second final just for them. So there was the final with the three fastest teams and the final with the three heat winners the first final, the fastest teams, French teams took gold and silver and, Ger and a German team took bronze. In the second final, the heat winners, German teams took gold and bronze and a Dutch team took silver. The IOC recognizes all of these as official Olympic results. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't seem like the, I mean, they can certainly split events into multiple events after the fact, right? That shouldn't be much of a controversy. It's their prerogative. Yeah, but I mean, they had the rules set up and then they were just rewriting them on the fly, which... That's, look, they're I'm, agile. I'm saving track and field because track and field did that a lot. <laughs> well, track and field seems to be uh, changed each time yeah. to suit the needs of whoever's hosting the event. Yeah. Whereas rowing seems to be changed literally on the fly or post several of the qualifiers to possibly just avoid a riot. I don't know. Swimming. Swimming wasn't that bad, though there was still some silliness. Most of the said of the silliness came to the fact that they were swimming in a river with the current and smashed all existing world record well, world swimming records because of this. It was held in the Seine at the same place as rowing, though on different days. Frederick Lane of Australia beat the world record in the 200 meter freestyle by 13 seconds. Good for him. Zoltan Helme of Hungary won silver, and he will be appearing in the next few episodes. Uh, John Jarvis, a British long-distance swimmer, won the 1,000-meter freestyle by over one minute and the 4,000-meter freestyle by over 10 minutes. So just for, like, estimate uh, reference, the 1,000-meter er, race is about a 15-minute race, and the 4,000-meter race is about an hour. So that was a significant amount of time that he so shaved did, off. Did they have to adjust these records for inflation, or did athletes get better enough later to beat these for real um i think i think there was uh they, they weren't adjusting the mm -hmm. times um and yeah i think that because like the training at this point they were wearing wool swimsuits <laughs> so, that sounds that sounds delightful yeah <laughs> um so our buddy hal may medaled in both races as well bronze in the one thousand uh, one thousand meter and silver in the four thousand Robert Crawshaw, another British swimmer, was heavily favored in the 200-meter backstroke, but either didn't finish or didn't compete at all in the final, possibly due to German Ernst Hoppenberg beating him by 20 seconds in the qualifying heat. Hoppenberg's time in the final was 2 minutes 47 seconds. Carl Ruberl of, of Austria took silver with 2 minutes 56 seconds, and Johannes Drost of the Netherlands took bronze with a time of 3 minutes 1 second. Underwater swimming is an event we no longer have. In fact, the 1900 Olympics was the only time it was an Olympic event. It was a points event where the swimmers earned two points for each meter swum and one point for each second swum underwater. 
Charles de Venville and André Six of France says six, but I know that's not how they pronounce it. Of France took gold and silver. Danish swimmer Peter Lekeborg took silver or took bronze. According to Journal des Sports, Lekeborg actually swam longer underwater and covered more distance, but did it in circles and they only counted distance in a straight line. I'm, I'm actually okay with that. Like, <laughs> you, start, you have a starting point, you do whatever you need to, and you just make the straightness or curvature of your path part of the technique. I'm, I'm okay with that being sort of a, an inclement factor. But it was taken off of the Olympic roster due to lack of spectator appeal. And oxygen? Yeah. Wait, <laughs> spectator appeal. It's an unbroken surface of water. You right. literally can't see them. <laughs> yes. Now that we have the technology of, like, giant... Underwater Fish cameras tanks, and stuff, whatever. Yeah. Cameras. Cameras would have been way better than my idea. <laughs> um, yeah, we should bring it back. Obstacle course. They had a swimming obstacle course. Another thing we should bring back, assuming that it's not around anymore. So, yeah, it's not. <laughs> Swimmers had to climb over a pole, climb over a row of boats, and then swim under another row of boats. <laughs> Presumably the very boats from the previous day's right. rowing events. <laughs> Frederick Lane of Australia won by about 1.5 seconds. Otto Wall of Germany took silver, and he is another that will be appearing in future episodes. In the 200-meter team swimming, Germany won, and French teams took silver and bronze, but it's not clear which French team took which medal. <laughs> and I'm going to quote directly from the Wikipedia article about the men's 200-meter team swimming event as to why that is. There were four heats, with five swimmers in each heat. Scoring used a fairly strange system. Swimmers were seeded into heats, then received a number of points depending on what place they received in which heat. The five swimmers in the first heat were given between one and five points, with the winner receiving one and points increasing with place. The swimmers in the second heat received between six and ten points, and so on. The scores of the five swimmers on a team were added up, and the team with the fewest points won. This gave a strong advantage to the German team, which had three swimmers in the first heat, and an equally strong disadvantage to the Parisian team with three swimmers in the fourth heat. Uh, if points were given by best time regardless of heat, the Pupil de Neptune and the Triton switch places, which is the name of their teams, though the Germans still win and the Parisian team still takes fourth. This is an incredibly elaborate system to try and have carried out by the folks who don't know if their event made a profit. <laughs> An event that 50 million paying customers went to, where they don't know if it made a profit. All right. Oh, and here we go. Tug of War. Yes. Tug of War gets its own section. For some reason, I don't really understand. I would think it would count as a track and field event, but apparently it's its own thing. The 1900 Games was the only time Tug of War was an Olympic. That's actually not true. I don't know why they, they said that, because in 1904 they did it again. Um, and pretty much nobody took it seriously except the Scandinavians. <laughs> Records aren't great, and the official word is that there were only one match between a French team and a team of Danes and Swedes. The mixed team won 2-0 and oh and got gold, which is what the Scandinavians were all worked up about. They wanted to meddle in something. There were some reports of a Norwegian team, which are probably inaccurate, as there weren't enough Norwegians competing to make up a team. Uh, there was also some nonsense with the Americans' participation in this event, which I'm going to have Frank read uh, an excerpt from the New York Herald Paris edition from 1900 about that. Ah, uh, yes. The tug of war was an object lesson in how not to do a thing. <laughs> First, the Scandinavians beat the racing club team, and the victory was likely to rest with them. 
but somebody buzzed but somebody buzzed about and got an American team together to try and keep this event for the stars and stripes. You can really tell that this is an American periodical. I'm sorry, I am interjecting editorial. <laughs> the scratch lot had never pulled together and were tickled to death with the idea of trying. Out came the muscle and sinew of young American. To pull against the Dutsman, neither team had the slightest science in any the neither team had the slightest science and any team of Irish police Irish <laughs> Nope, sorry, I lost this train of thought. We need to fix this in post. Okay. Neither team had the slightest science, and any team of Irish policemen, the finest tug-of-war exponents of the world, would have beaten them. But it was pull devil, pull baker. They did pull. The Americans had taken off their shoes and socks and dug their toes into the ground like Darwinian demons. The crowd gathered in, those the crowd gathered in close and yelled themselves hoarse, shouting, screaming, lashing the slaves tugging at the rope with their tongues, spurting, go arm, when the crack of their exhorting whip became exhausted. Over came the Netherlanders. Then they changed sides and essayed again. It was the end of the day, and the surrounding became a pandemonium. The men could scarcely breathe the howling, crazy crowd almost treading on their feet. A sly pool of a bystander would have escaped attention, as dozens of willing hands inst to take five cards in the game. Dust! Heat! Five minutes tugging, surrounded by the well-dressed people who became, for the moment, barbarians. And again, the weight and muscle of the United States pulled their opponents over the line. It was an impromptu and distinctly amateur show, but there was no less enthusiasm on that account. In fact, rather more. The utmost good humor prevailed afterwards, and the Scandinavians taking their beating very well, and the lack of applause for them during the tussle was amply atoned for subsequently. There is then highlighted a note below. It should also be noted that the New York Times, 17 July 1900, noted the remaining event, the tug of war, was won by a Swedish against a French team, the Americans not competing. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, the five minutes of tugging, I was just... Juvenile laughter. I, right I do apologize for tripping up over this sentence about the Irish policeman, which came entirely out of left field, and I had no way of accounting for. All right. Uh, water polo. Water polo is another one with bad records, conflict, conflicting team rosters, and confusing accounts of what happened. More or less of a lark than regular polo? Um, probably less. Water polo is awful. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't have the ponies. You're just drowning. <laughs> Wait, do we not were, use ponies in water horses? In yeah. polo, not in water I think there polo. Were water polo. No, water polo is when you like try to drown each other for ninety minutes. I'm pretty sure there's horses. There's no horses in I water polo. Be horses. The, I mean, it would be in <laughs> yachting. We're just going to read from Mallon's book. This is actually an excerpt from a short essay by Ian Buchanan titled "A Review of Olympic Yachting, 1900." Sarah, do you want to read that? Can't read the whole long list of sources. No, no, I, I just the highlighted just portions. Part. Yeah, that's part of the highlighted. Oh, part. really? Yeah. Okay. Well, just whatever sounds okay. interesting. <laughs> in common with many other sports at the 1900 games, the yachting results are varied, incomplete, and contradictory. While many important aspects remain intractable, I feel that the following represents the most comprehensive survey available of the 1900 Olympic yachting regatta. The results and comments which follow are the results of not only my own researches, but equally those of Terwildland of Sweden. <laughs> the 1900 Olympic Yachting Regatta began with a concours d'honneur at Moulin, Mulin on 20th of May. 
The rules of competition required that all yachts intending to compete in the five individual classes up to 10 tons at Ulan over the next few days took part in the concourse or open class as it is sometimes known. The almost complete absence of any wind caused considerable problems. It is known that at least 49 yachts started, but only seven completed the course within the time limit, and of the seven finishers, two, Mamie and Carabinier, were disqualified for using other means of propulsion than the sail. After a break of one day, the Olympic regatta continued on the 22nd of May, when the first race for the less than half ton, half to one ton, and one to two tons classes was held. As was the case with the Concours d'Honneur, the competing yachts in these three events engaged in what was effectively a mass start with only a brief interval between the scheduled starting time for each yacht. Precise details of the individual starting times are shown in the Journal des Marines of, of the 26th of May in 1900. The congestion which this caused is described in the yachting world <laughs> as follows. The river was absolutely blocked with vessels of all shapes, rigs, and sizes, and it became exceedingly difficult to keep clear of each other. The big vessels, which had started later, brought up a breeze with them and ran right up to the smaller craft, so that at the turning mark, every boat was huddled up together. Interestingly, the yachting world also reports that 65 boats competed, but from the results which follow, it will be seen that not all of these have been identified. The same report in the yachting world states the races for the international prizes given by the French exhibition were from 30 tons to a half a ton, but there is no mention of a 30-ton class in the official report. Several similar congested conditions prevailed on the second and third day of sailing, but the classes involved in the mass start were slightly different. In addition to the events at Mulan, two Olympic events, 10 to 20 tons and to over 20 tons, were held at Le Havre. <laughs> Sure. The 10 to 20 tons event was the only 1900 Olympic event where the final placings were decided on the aggregate result of the three separate races. Initially, historians did not consider the 10 to 20 tons to be an Olympic event, but an advertisement in the field inviting entries leaves no doubt as to its affiliation with the Paris exhibition. So yeah, they had like all of these boats on the Seine at once on days with no wind. <laughs> Yeah, so there's, there seemed to be a lot of details in there. I'm not sure I completely grokked, but it sounded like phantom boats showed up <laughs> out of nowhere and also disappeared from the trace, so potentially straight-up ghost ships ghosts yes. were involved. The Flying Dutchman was entered. And may have meddled. <laughs> Probably. They, yeah, they brought a wind with them. So, like, they have all the, the smaller yachts. They, they have them divided into classes based on tonnage, which I guess is, like, how much water they displace. I, I assumed it was weight, but I... And it yeah. sounded like they let the smaller, lighter ones go first? And and they had no wind. Yeah. And then the big ones came later, and they had some wind. And so they just go right into the middle of all the little boats. Okay, it so that like, raises... The, yeah, sorry. It seems like poor planning. That, that raises the question, the boats that were disqualified by the propulsion that was not wind. Yes. Was that propulsion, in fact, them being pushed forward by a larger boat behind them? <laughs> I don't know. It could. I was that or a motor. Or I don't know. They were paddling. Some with their guy hands. got out and pushed. <laughs> yeah. like a bucket. A bucket. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know. Mermaids came to help. It was. It was ridiculous. Um, so yeah, because especially those those big ones, uh, the big boats, they would have crews of like three hundred people. Like they were massive, massive ships. They weren't all wind powered, were they? Yeah. Yeah. They're all sailing ships. That that's like the thing. So, 
I'm imagining all modern, on this... modern yachts. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah. I'm like, no, um, some of them were electrical. No, no. I mean, that's part, that, that wouldn't be Olympic if they had a motor. None of them, not, if you see the sailing at the Olympics, none of them, have, none, yeah. well, they might have motors. They don't use motors in the competition. Um, anyway, so now we're on to track and field, which I've saved because there's a lot of it. Track and field was still called athletics at this point and was the only event that was widely understood to be an Olympic event. The program called it Ch Championnats Universal. The competition was held at the Bois de Boulogne, uh, the park in Paris that I mentioned earlier. Um, or no, that I mentioned last episode, the Bois de Boulogne, where they, they had the track and field where they didn't put in a track because they didn't want to mess up so the grass. So mostly just a field. Yeah. <laughs> you just call this the field events. Yeah. <laughs> it was extremely hot. It was held from July 14th through the 22nd. Um, it was extremely hot, especially on the 16th and the 19th, with temperatures above 95 degrees Fahrenheit or 35 Celsius. The French organizers didn't want to mess up the very pretty park with a cinder track, so races were held in the grass. The track, such as it was, was 500 meters long, which is an unusual length. Tracks are usually 400 meters around, so that four laps is a 1600 meter or approximately one mile. Throwing events were held in a picturesque area lined with trees, which meant if you weren't accurate enough in your throwing, your discus or javelin or whatever would get stuck in trees. There was nowhere for spectators to watch any of it. No, well, not safely. Yeah, yeah, not safely. That actually becomes relevant. Uh, <laughs> uh. The Olympic, the Americans were the dominating team at the event. They were also favored going in. Most of them were on college teams, and the students from Syracuse University were prohibited from competing on Sundays. Uh, but the teammates who were not college students or weren't, uh, there was only one of those, and we'll get to him. And athletes from other schools, like the University of Pennsylvania, were not operating under the same restrictions. Um, this is something that will continue to pop up for a while, by the way. Um, the I refuse to compete on Sundays thing is something that sticks around for at least uh, 20 years until we get to the, uh, what's it called? Chariot of Fire guys, that, what that movie's based on. Um, and... Uh, there's something that continues to pop up for a while, by the way, but by now, as far as I know, anybody who has objection to competing on Sundays doesn't compete at the Olympics. <laughs> um, the French officials agreed to change some of the final competitions that were scheduled for Sunday, July 15th to other days, but at the last minute decided that the original day for the finals was final. The Americans tried to protest, but eventually gave up. They won most of the events anyway. Good for them. We'll get into this a little bit more in a bit. I was curious, um, the track length that, that you mentioned. Yeah. Did they account for this in any way when setting up the events, or is it still by number of laps and therefore just 20% longer? Um, I think they had different lengths. There's like a 1,500 meter length that they do that we just don't do anymore. And my cat just jumped up on the table where we're, we've got the microphone, so hopefully she doesn't rub on the microphone. Hey, Gabs. That is immediately what is happening. Yeah, she's like looking at it. This is a quiet one, though. Mimi, Mimi, I was recording a different one, and Mimi came over and started yelling into the mic, so. <laughs> this is Gabby. She's going to say hi to Sarah, because Sarah's having allergies, so that's what the cat's going for. All right. Um, one of those successful Americans was Alvin Kreinslein. Kreinslein. Kreinslein? Invented the modern hurdling technique of leading with one leg while bending the other behind. Before that, hurdlers would jump over with both feet, so they would... They would run up to the hurdle and like hop over it and then run up to the next one and like hop over it. Like how a child would jump over something? Yeah, pretty much. Like with both feet in front. So he's the guy who came up with, he's going to like leap over with one leg and bend his other leg behind him so he doesn't 
lose stride or break a stride essentially so so he is going to just crush all the records oh yeah he already set a world record in the 200 meter hurdles that would last for 26 years and he was able to win gold in the 110 hurdles and the t- uh, 110 meter hurdles and the 200 meter hurdles he also won gold in the 60 meter dash and the long jump do we have any records as to whether this new technique was considered ungentlemanly in any capacity? No, no, there wasn't. But, I mean, a big part of why it was is they used to make hurdles out of different materials. So, like, now they're shaped like an L, right? So you have, like, the top, the, the, the vertical part you jump over, and then it's, like, got this base that only goes in one direction, and it's like an L. So if you bump it, it just falls over. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But back then, it was like an inverted T. Oh, so you would cripple yourself. Pretty much. And they were much heavier. Yeah, like if you banged your knee off of one of those, you were in trouble. You were, so, um, so that's why they jumped differently. That was a big part of it. Oh, they were still, but at this time when Krenzlein started this, they were still using the heavy inverted T-shaped. The lightweight L-shaped hurdles that we're familiar with weren't invented until 1935. So if you hit one, you wouldn't just knock it over; it would knock you out. <laughs> So, the long jump was the controversial one for Kranzlein. Qualifying rounds on the long jump was held on Saturday the 14th. Kranzlein qualified for the finals along with teammate Meyer Prinstein, who was a student at uh, Syracuse. Prinstein was Jewish, but competed on his own Sabbath on Saturday anyway. Some say that he and Kranzlein had an agreement that neither would compete on Sunday. Uh, side note, Peter O'Connor of Ireland also qualified in the long jump, but just didn't show up for the finals on Sunday the 15th. No record of why. I'm sure we can think of a few stereotypical <laughs> reasons. Right. Uh, Prinstein decided to show solidarity with his teammates and boycotted the Sunday competitions. Kranzlein, who was Christian, did not boycott. He jumped 7.185 meters, beating Prinstein's qualifying jump by one centimeter and won the gold. Prinstein suggested a Monday rematch. Kranzlein refused, and Prinstein punched him in the mouth and had to be dragged away. <laughs> uh, Prinstein, for his part, won gold at the triple jump on Monday the 16th, although that was a much less prestigious event that a lot of the competitors, particularly the Scandinavians, didn't really understand what they were supposed to be doing. <laughs> I mean, that is three times as many jumps as a regular <laughs> jumping event. It's three times as complicated. <laughs> Um, discus, like I said before, had the problem with the trees, which meant that they had to be accurate, not just throw it far. Hungry. How much of a problem of accuracy is it for Olympic level athletes to well, not hit a tree? Or was this another open, open season on competitors coming in? <laughs> um, I mean, now what they do is they throw it in the middle of a field, in the track and field, mm-hmm. and like there's boundaries, but it's a pretty wide ah. range that you can throw it in. Um, Hungary's Reza Bauer won gold, learn, earning Hungary's first Olympic track and field gold medal. The dreamy Scott, Lonston Ellis, competed in discus as there was no weightlifting in the 1900 games. Unfortunately, it was not his year or his sport, and he finished 11th. Hammer throw was basically just the Americans versus the Swedes. The Swedes were not as familiar with the sport, which led to problems when they released the hammers at the wrong time and sent them into the crowd. <laughs> uh, Americans swept. They were led by John Flanagan, the only American to win a track and field medal who wasn't a college student. And John Flanagan has a very long career um, of, like, Olympic gold medals. He's 
up there with like um, Michael Phelps in terms of how many medals he amassed over like the length of time. Hmm. Um, he uh, he was an. Uh, and will be showing up in future episodes. He was an Irish immigrant born in County Limerick who came to the U.S. in 1896 when he was 28. Uh, this guy, I mean, we're talking about stereotypical. So I'm offended. No, no, we're, well, you got to hear what I have to say no, about I'm him. I'm already offended. All right. He already held the world record for hammer throw at this point, having competed for Ireland in the world championships. He also finished second in the high jump long jump and all around at the 1895 Irish Championships, which was impressive considering he was 5 foot 10 inches tall and weighed 220 pounds or 1.78 meters and 100 kilograms. After these Olympics, he would join the NYPD <laughs> and start a throwing club, leading to a lot of New York cops th uh, New York cop throwing Olympians. <laughs> he developed the three turn technique, which revolutionized the sport. So if you see that they start and then they like one, two, three, mm -hmm. let go. He's the one who invented that so technique. So this is a very good Olympic year for basically inventing how to do track and field. Yeah, better, uh, yeah. Between the jumping over the hurdles and spinning around three times to throw a shot put. Like, yeah. We have or, this on lock now. Not a shot put. This is the hammer. Sorry, hammer. Yeah. Okay. The yeah, bit, a you wouldn't have gotten the cops interested in just throwing the ball around. It had to be <laughs> something super dangerous. <laughs> I mean, those balls are pretty dangerous. They're, they're cannonballs is what they yeah. are. That's how yeah. They, yeah. But the hammer is much more dangerous. <laughs> Well, the hammer, we'll, we'll describe what it is, because it doesn't look like a hammer. Uh, it's a metal ball attached by a steel wire to a grip. Ah, I concede the point of danger. <laughs> yeah. The hammer thrown by the men in the Olympics weighs 16 pounds and is and the, the chain is 3 feet 11 and 3 quarters inch long. Why is it attached to something? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they don't even... And it just seems like so much extra danger right. for no reason. Yeah, yeah. Now this is what the Scandinavians were throwing into the crowd too. <laughs> um, yeah, and or it's uh, seven point two six kilograms and one hundred twenty one point three centimeters long. The women throw a hammer that is eight point eight two pounds and three feet eleven inches long, or four kilograms and one hundred nineteen point four centimeters. I uh, none of these lengths make any sense to me. I have no idea what this is based on. Um, a lot of the throwing events are based on things that, like, you know, the shot put is a cannonball, um, the the javelin's a spear, the discus. Some guy was is a like, frisbee. "What <laughs> if we tie a ball to a length of wire and well, make it super dangerous?" Yeah, you just take a javelin and a shot put and, and you put tie them together. them together with a wire and you throw them both at the same time. Guys, but I'm I, the best at javelin shot put. But I just don't know what where the lengths came from. Three feet eleven and three quarters inches. Like, why not? Oh, that's clearly, that's clearly someone fucking up four feet. Right. Yeah. It's a cubit. And then the hammer, the women throw a hammer that's 8.82 pounds or four kilograms. So, okay, so that makes sense on the, the, the metric side, right? Or um, three foot 11 inches long, which is 119.4 centimeters. Like, why just do four feet? <laughs> Or, probably or 120 kind of, centimeters. Probably like, some kind of tariff on four foot lengths of wire <laughs> being imported into the country and they had to get just under the wire. Uh, <laughs> I'm leaving. Back to the nonsense. <laughs> like we ever left. Uh, pole vault. The finals were on July 15th, the same day of Kranzlein's long jump betrayal. There weren't any qualifying rounds the day before as there were only eight athletes registered to compete anyway. 
The Americans claimed that at a meeting on the 11th, it was decided that they would be given a chance on Monday the 16th to best the top marks from Sunday. However, on Saturday night, the French officials decided Sunday was it, and no consideration would be granted for the Sabbatarian objectors. But they didn't tell the Americans. <laughs> the top vaulters at the games were both American, uh, from different, you know, the, probably the Syracuse team, I don't, or um, University of Pennsylvania team, I don't, I'm not sure. Uh, Charles Dvorak, Dan Horton, and Bascom Johnson. They all boycotted the Sunday finals. So these were the top vaulters from the qualifiers. Um, oh, no, no, they didn't have qualifiers. So these were all guys who were coming in with the best records. Right. All right, okay. Irving Baxter and Mer Meredith Colkett, also American, competed on Sunday and won gold and silver. Little trivia, the pole vault final started at 4.30 p.m. Baxter, who won the gold, also won gold in high jump at 3.45 p.m. <laughs> so he had a busy day. Um, or just a busy afternoon. That was, like, all within an hour. Um, the Americans who had boycotted, Dvorak, Horton, and Johnson, were real mad. So they had an event on Monday where Johnson beat Baxter's winning jump by .08 meters, but the French were like, doesn't count. <laughs> They had another event on July 19th where Horton beat Baxter's winning jump by 0.15 meters and Javorak beat it by 0.05 meters, but the French didn't count that one either. <laughs> um, in the end, the Sunday final stood, which meant that Carl Anderson of Norway held on to his bronze medal. <laughs> Good for him. Yes. <laughs> one bright spot in all of this bullshit is Ray Uri. He won three gold medals in these games. Standing high jump, standing long jump, and standing triple jump. We don't do any of these anymore. These are basically these jumps that we now, like... Well, you get a running start. Yeah, you get a running start yes. on all of these. Um, and they had those versions then. But they also had ones where you had no running start. You just jumped as far as you could or as high as you could or did a triple jump. Sure. I don't see running. why we would get rid of these, but maybe they're just a little redundant for modern yeah. sensibilities. I think they're a little redundant and they're not as interesting to watch, I think, between the two. Hmm. Um, Yuri, who was an incredible athlete at these events, um, these standing jumps, had been paralyzed by polio as a child and started doing standing jumps to strengthen his legs. He overshot that goal by quite a bit and became the greatest standing jumper of his time, possibly all time, because we don't do this anymore. Um, so, moving on to the races. Most of these are pretty straightforward, even though the track was a mess and not really a track. A race is still a race. And none of them were scheduled for Sunday, so there was none of this goofy Sabbath stuff. Uh, Charles Burnett of Great Britain won the 1500 meter, which well, is... Well, there are Jewish runners. Well, we, we had a Jewish jumper who, like, Princeton, who was like... Who moved his Sabbath, but... He didn't move his Sabbath. He competed on his own Sabbath, but Sorry, like, yes, didn't but... for his teammates and got screwed for it. Um, anyway, I have a lot of sympathy for Princeton. I was like, that was that was a jerk move. All right, anyway. Uh, Charles Burnett of Great Britain won the 1500 meter in four minutes and six seconds, smashing the world record. Uh, current times for men's 1500 meter is a little under 330. Uh, women's closer to four minutes, so... Um, he ran the last lap in a wild sprint that would still be remarkably fast at 1 minute, uh, 10.2 seconds. So, yeah, they did this 1500 meter race, which is one that doesn't happen in the Olympics anymore, although it does happen in other events. The marathon was fishy, though not as bad as the 1904 marathon, which is unbelievably bad, but we'll get to that. Well, um, so, better or worse than the, uh, previous one? Worse. 
Okay. Yeah, worse, definitely. So if we're measuring this in terms of athletes who just straight disappeared for days at a time. (laughs) No, that didn't happen. Okay. Yeah. um, The event started at 2.30 p.m. on a day that was exceptionally hot. (laughs) Temperatures would reach a high of 39 degrees Celsius or 102 degrees Fahrenheit. For reference, marathons usually start much earlier now, 7 to 8 a.m. And if you remember the 1896 Olympics, they started at 8 a.m. And are planned for days when the temperature isn't supposed to go above 70 degrees or 21 degrees Celsius. And a lot of places will cancel or stop in-progress races if they think it'll get too hot. Because it'll kill people. Yep. Um, What's 32 degrees difference in temperature between (laughs) friends? The course was through the streets of Paris. American Arthur Newton, who placed fifth, later alleged that Michel Peato and Emile Champion, the gold and silver medalists, cheated and used shortcuts. Peato in particular, as he worked as a delivery man for a bakery and would know pretty much every random side street and shortcut in the city. Newton said they weren't as tired as the other competitors. I think he used, they were like remarkably fresh or whatever at the finish Mm -hmm. line. And their uniforms were not spattered with mud like the rest of them, and that he had an early lead and nobody passed him. Eventually he sued over this, but the case was dismissed. One of the flaws in his suit was that Ernst Fast of Sweden, who was just as unfamiliar with Paris as Newton was, won bronze. So, Well, but he may have gotten lost on some side streets and yeah, just come just out of the finish line. Followed the other guys. Or yeah, they must know the route. Yeah. Also, his last name is Fast, and how are you going to beat a guy whose name is Fast? I mean, I assume he was also wearing a red shirt with a stripe. <laughs> Gotta go fast. All right. Uh, the French were very confident that Henri Tanzin, who won five French titles and held the European record, would win the 400-meter hurdles. And Americans and British were unfamiliar with this distance, and neither used it in their national championships until 1914. There were ten entries in the race, but only five actually showed up. They held heats anyway, and four runners advanced to the, advanced the finals. So it sucks to be that guy who didn't make it to the finals. How did he lose a heat against no-shoes? <laughs> right. The hurdles for this race were 30-foot-long telephone poles laid across the track. I mean, he may have tripped and broken his ankle on a telephone pole. <laughs> that would be one way. Except for the final hurdle, which was actually a water jump. That seems fine. I actually have no complaints about that part. American Walter Tewksbury won, crossing the finish line five yards ahead of Tanzan. Uh, Canadian George Orton finished out with bronze. Rounding out the track and field, George Orton also won gold in the 2,500-meter steeplechase. The steeplechase, if once the Olympics run, the Summer Olympics roll around again, the steeplechase is a really fun race to watch. Um, this one had a water jump, hurdles, and stone fences. To you had to jump. The 4,000-meter steeplechase was on the same track. They just did it not quite twice. Um, And the British swept. Another British victory that is officially counted as a mixed team gold because of quirks of colonialism, the 5,000-meter team race. This was not a relay race, but similar to a points race in cycling where the teams racked up points for each race won. They needed five runners, but only had four. They talked their Australian friend, sprinter Stanley Rowley, into competing with them against the French team. The British were confident they could win regardless of how well the fifth runner performed, because they figured they would win enough laps or whatever, and then... uh, And why did they not think the Australian would be good at running? Because it's a distance race, and he's a short... Mm. Oh, they recruited a sprinter for a a distance run. Yeah. Thus, Rowley, without any experience in longer races, was drafted to fill the quota. 
Following the first lap, Rally began walking and trailed behind everyone. <laughs> After the ninth runner fin- crossed the finishing line, Rally was the only athlete still going and therefore re- would receive 10th place were he to finish. The race officials decided it would be pointless for him to walk <laughs> the final 1,500 meters and awarded him 10th place at the end of his seventh lap. Nonetheless, the British team, including Rowley, beat the French team by three points and won the gold medal. I have a question. Okay. Did he know that you can go at speeds other than sprinting? <laughs> Does he understand the concept of jogging? I, I just, did, they, did they even tell him a little bit? Like, you know, <laughs> this race is longer than the ones that you're used to. I don't know, but this tradition of Australians kind of stumbling into gold medals will continue with a speed skating event, I think, in 2002. I love that he was rewarded for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think what you're also forgetting is how many points did he get on that first lap? Because presumably a lot? None, no. No, oh, it, his... wasn't, it, was, it was by event and not by lap, right? It was, it was similar yeah. to the points race, but it was, you'd have your ten guys running, and then... It was like I see, I see, I see. Yeah, you cumulative uh, placement, yes. not not a literal ability to accrue points early on in yeah, the trail yeah. off. Yeah. Well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> and also, like even so, if he if he were to manage to lap everybody in that first lap, it would be an incredible feat because um, the. That race, the one lap around the track, is one of the most physically demanding because it's right in between a sprint and a long-distance race. And uh, um, it's really difficult hmm. <laughs> like, because to pace it because you're basically running at a sprint around the entire track. Um, That's why they're Olympic-level athletes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I have a title. The title on this is We Happy Few, We Band of Sisters. You may have noticed as I was going through that I mentioned women competing because they did for the first time. One good thing to come out of DeCouperton's loss of control over the Olympics was that women were able to compete, albeit in a very limited way, and having to wear corsets the whole time. Uh, the sports women competed in were croquet, golf, tennis, and one in yachting. And I mentioned El- Elvira Guerra competing in equestrian, but the event she participated in is no longer recognized by the IOC as an Olympic event at the 1900 Olympics. Jerks. Uh, golf and tennis had the most competitors, and those were the ones with specific women events. In croquet and yachting, they competed alongside the men. Uh, there were 22 women competing in these Olympics, counting Ms. Guerra. The women who medaled were Marion Jones, Margaret Ives Abbott, Pauline Qu- Polly Whittier, and Daria Pankhurst Wright Pratt, who later became Princess of Serbia of the United States, Charlotte Renegal Cooper of Great Britain, and Helen de Portales of Switzerland. Abbott won the gold in women's golf, Cooper won the gold in women's tennis, and Helen Helen de Portales, the only woman competing in yachting, won gold in the one to two ton class race number one. So we're going to talk about Portales a little bit. As we sort of skim the yachting event in general, uh, she was born in 1868 in New York City. Her maiden name was Helen Barbet. She married Count Hermann de Portales of Switzerland in 1891 and was a crew member on Hermann's boat, Lairine. They competed in race number one and race number two for the one to two ton class, winning gold in the first and silver in the second. They entered the open class, which we were talking about with like the <laughs> massive boats with no wind, uh, and they, but they did not finish. They were out of the 49 that entered that race. They were, one of the, they were not one of the seven that actually finished the race. Um, and as the yachting events took place in May, making it one of the earlier events. She was the first woman to compete in the Olympics and the first woman to win a gold medal in the Olympics. 
She also watched the women's golf tournament as Herman, Herman's cousin Jacques was a referee. In addition to being a skilled sailor, she was also an avid equestrian. She did not compete in any other Olympics, but died in Geneva on November 2nd, 1945, at the end of age of 77. That's about all I know about her. <laughs> um, and the aftermath. Marilon and the rest of the people running the 1900 Olympic Games didn't make any distinction between Olympic sports and just general sporting exhibitions involving professionals, children, animals, etc., Children again allowed to compete in the Olympics. <laughs> That's not a concern. Uh, most of the women, uh, most of the winners, weren't given medals but cups and trophies. Often it was unclear whether they were given cash prizes or the cash listed with the awards is the estimated value of the object d'art that they were given as trophies. There were no opening ceremonies and no closing ceremonies for a long time. And by a long time, I mean something like 100 years. It wasn't clear which events actually were Olympic events and which were simply exhibitions. It wasn't until sometime between 1998 when Bill Mallon published his book and and now that the IOC finally made an official statement on which events were Olympic. Many of the competitors didn't know that they had won an Olympic event. For example, Michelle Teato, the winner of the marathon, didn't know it was an Olympic marathon until 1912. Oh, that must have been a great conversation. <laughs> right. Margaret Abbott, who won the gold medal in women's golf, never knew. She died in 1955, by the way. She spent those 55 years thinking she had just won a normal tournament. Paula Welch, a history professor at the University of Florida, spent 10 years tracking down her children to let them know what their mother had accomplished. Although, even that is controversial. While there are historians such as Paula Welch and Bill Mallon who consider the 1900 Olympics to be an Olympic Games and the athletes who competed to be Olympians, there are, there's some controversy over this. Um, others, such as Ian Buchanan, believe that all of this digging through records and comparing events to modern criteria to see what fit and what didn't is rewriting history. It was not called the Olympics, the people competing considered it an exhibition or other minor athletic competition that was part of the expo. To call them Olympians now is to rewrite history. Ah, uh, but the IOC was technically not disbanded for this and did run the event. Is that not correct? They didn't. Uh, they didn't run the events. It was all the French government. They, they started that whole new thing. The only person I think involved was de Couperton, and even that, he was just uh, basically trying to fix their messes. So the IOC was technically not disbanded, but also not in any capacity running this. Right. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. Uh, such an attempt is centered around that controversial marathon champion, Michel Tato. In the 1990s, French sport historian Alain Boulet discovered that Tato wasn't even French. He was Luxembourgian. <laughs> he was born in Luxembourg City and then moved to Belgium before ending up in Paris, but he only ever had Luxembourgian citizenship. In 2004, the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg lodged a complaint to have his gold medal recognized as theirs instead of French, but the IOC rejected the claim. Officially, Luxembourg's first appearance was in 1912. They have won a total of four medals since then, one gold and three silver, mostly in skiing. So, I figured just give it to him. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I feel like just give it to him. It's France. If, right, yeah. One of the athletes who competed heavily favored American sprinter Arthur Duffy, was heavily favored American sprinter Arthur Duffy. He had just won the AAA Amateur Athletic Association Championship in London. He did not medal at the 1900 Olympics as he pulled a muscle halfway through the 100 meter sprint. 
However, he would go on to win a number of AAA and AAU Amateur Athletic Union championships and ran the 100-meter sprint in 9.6 seconds in 1902. However, his is not a name that is very familiar as no official records of his accomplishments remain. Uh, in 1905, AAU president James Sullivan declared Duffy a professional athlete and expunged all his records. Sullivan did this because Duffy preferred to wear running shoes made by an English company instead of the shoes made in New York, which coincidentally were made by a company that Sullivan was associated with. So is the, is the accusation that these shoes were the payment? No, no. He just forced him to say that he accepted payment and then had him drummed out because he the, wouldn't wear the right shoes. In the form of competitive shoes? No, it, no, it, was, it had nothing to do... Nothing officially to do with the shoes, but that's why he did it, because he wasn't making a profit off of Duffy. Duffy tried to establish another athletic association to challenge the dominance of Sullivan and the AAU. In 1908, he founded the National Protective Athletic Association, NPAA, but as far as I can tell, that was unsuccessful and it no longer exists. He worked as a columnist for the Boston Post and died in 1955 at the age of 76. And before we leave Duffy behind, I hope you will appreciate knowing that he was inducted into the U.S. Track and Field Hall of Fame in 2012. And we will be hearing a lot more about James Sullivan and other horrible things he did in the next episode. While the stories that, we have, that have come out of the 1900 Paris Olympics are now of little interest or funny or outrageous to the athletes competed, competing, there was a great deal of discontent and disappointment. We mentioned earlier how the Germans believed their poor treatment was intentional, but they were not the only ones to have a hard time. Stanley Rowley of Australia put it this way, quote, to treat these events as world's championships would really be an insult to the important events they're supposed to be. They're treated by most of the competitors as, this is all caps, a huge joke. And when it comes to that one has come all this way from Australia to compete in them, it really seems ridiculous. Just to put this in perspective, to travel from Australia to Paris at this time would have taken somewhere between one to two months. That, that is quite an investment for athletes to make if it's not uh, at the level that we sort of associate with the Olympics today, for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's one to two months to get there and then another one to two months to get back. Stanley Rowley, at least, won four medals. Gold in the 5,000-meter team race and bronze in the 60-meter, 100-meter, and 200-meter sprints. But I also feel like if you have athletes traveling the better part of a year to participate, maybe go ahead and call the thing an Olympics. Right. People in 2012 who are trying to keep this up. Right. It should be noted by, that by this time, the Olympics had ado adopted the motto, Sidious Altius Fortius, the faster, higher, stronger, which is one of those things we still have and we associate with it a lot. Um, and even with all this nonsense, the movement was not yet dead. The Olympic ideals of people from all over the world competing as equals would never fit in with an event like the Exposition, which was about French supremacy, basically. Um, unfortunately, this would not be the last time such a mis mismatch would happen. An obvious one looms about 36 years in the future, but before that we have the 1904 Olympics in St. Louis, which we will talk about next time. The first American Olympics. Yes. And therefore, the best. Nope, can't even make sense. <laughs> no, they are. They're the best. They're the best. For certain definitions of best. Yeah, they're, they're certainly something. But we'll hope you will join us next time to hear more about that. And thank you. Okay. Cue outro.